That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back, or if you're brand new, welcome to This Show Is All About You. So excited to have you with me for the next hour as we take a look at things going on in the world as, and as well as conversations that we, we have often, but we try to get under them on this show and uh, get to the things that connect us, no matter what we may agree or disagree on, whether it's in the now or part of humanity across time and space. Yes, it's an ambitious agenda, but you know what? I really enjoy doing it and really enjoy having you along with me uh, for this journey. So thanks so much for being here. If you are listening to this live, I hope wherever you are, you are doing well this afternoon. And remember, you can get any episode of this show is all about you as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. So in advance, thank you so much for finding it, for subscribing, for leaving me a review and for sharing it with your family and friends. I truly do appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about me, you can check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and X, which is not going to work, by the way, as a title. <laughs> it's It's got to be Twitter or, or something other than X. That's just dumb. Anyway, you can find me there. <laughs> just look up W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You'll find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you. And hear your thoughts on the show, maybe get some ideas on future uh, topics that I can hit, whatever's on your mind. Love to do that. Special thanks at the start of the show, as always, to the longtime sponsor of this show is all about you, which is Airway Science for Kids. Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds And they introduce kids not just to those careers, but they do so in such a way that helps kids better connect with themselves, with their families, and with their communities to the benefit of all of those groups, not just in the now, but in the future. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that they do at Airway Science for Kids, check out their website, airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I, dot org. And you'll hear more about them during the breaks. All right. I'm coming out of the gates exploding this week, everybody, because I had a lot of uh, positive feedback, some negative feedback on last week's episode, uh, but that encouraged me to kind of continue on the same vein this week. So I have some more thoughts building off of last week's episode. And if you haven't heard that episode yet, check it out when you get a chance. But as always, let's take a look back on the week that was in the segment that I call What in the World is Going On? They're concerned the assessment of the battle to regain territory is increasingly sobering. Illinois Congressman Mike Quigley just recently returned from meetings in Europe with U.S. commanders training Ukrainian forces, told CNN, quote, our briefings are sobering. We're reminded of the challenges they face. This is the most difficult time of the war. More and more reminders that the war in Ukraine continues to grind on and does not seemingly have an end in sight. And depending on what side you're on, uh, that's, well, I think on either side you're on, that's not good news. And it's not good for anybody because more and more people and more and more property and more and more lives uh, and futures are being destroyed in that part of the world. 
And the counteroffensive that the Ukrainians are putting forward is going very, very slowly for a lot of reasons. The Russians had months and months to build up defenses, trenches, minefields across an area of Ukraine in the east and the southeast that's pretty much wide open plain. There's not a lot of cover there for people for troops to hide in. Uh, it's a really, really difficult terrain to fight. And it's been that way for centuries. Right? It was that way in World War II. It was that way in World War I. It was that way when Napoleon rolled through there in the 19th century. It's just a very difficult place to fight a war, no matter what it looks like or what weapons are being used. And as that continues, of course, the projection of power, both sides using drones to strike the other, continues to happen. And Ukraine has again stepped up its uh, attempts to destroy the key bridge connecting the Crimean Peninsula to Russia. And that is freaking the Russians out, to put it mildly. And they are responding in kind by lobbing missiles of all kinds at mainly civilian centers in Ukraine, which means civilian casualties continue to go up. And Russia continues to rattle the sabers against NATO, focusing more and more on making Poland out to be a real bad guy in this. Poland, of course, right on the border with Ukraine, a major point for refugees from Ukraine looking for asylum and safety. Poland is a major place for that. And Poland is a really integral part of what NATO is trying to do and part of NATO expansion. And Poland has a long history with Russia, much like Ukraine, that is, hmm, I'll give it the academic term, problematic. Nevertheless, that saber-rattling continues to rise. So with that in mind, there's some other things going on. And I, I have to mention what happened in Hawaii last week because it kind of cuts close to my heart. This morning, heartbreak, confusion, and lack of communication. Days after massive wildfires destroyed the heart of Western Maui, the desperate search for loved ones with hundreds still unaccounted for. This stunning drone video showing rows of torched vehicles, now twisted husks, frozen in time. So many people have died. My friends lost their grandparents in the fires. People are being found in their cars. In Lahaina, the town most devastated by the wildfire, a point of no return. Horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, what happened with that wildfire in Hawaii last week. And it cuts close to my heart because I grew up in Hawaii, or at least the early part of my life. I lived on the Big Island, which was not Maui, but Maui was obviously very close by and made a few visits over there as a kid. And I was reminded of when I was in fourth grade, I did a big project. I was already interested in history by then. And, and I was very fascinated by the era in which Hawaii was its own kingdom. And you may have heard on the news following the fire that Lahaina, which was largely destroyed in this fire, was once the capital of the Kingdom of Hawaii. And I did a report in fourth grade about the Kingdom of Hawaii in that era. And I talked about all the Kamehameha's and how it all worked and why Lahaina was chosen. And I remember going there a few times as a kid and visiting some of those really important sites uh, to Hawaiian culture and heritage. And a lot of those have been destroyed. And that's, that's very sad. What is Some of those things can be rebuilt restored or at least a new version of them but the lives destroyed is again the of the paramount thing that is painting me and it's a very difficult place to get supplies into uh, to get to get food into things are expensive in Hawaii for a reason because it, most things have to be brought in particularly emergency aid so if you have not yet contributed money or goods or time services I would strongly encourage you to do that and if you're looking for places that you can do that and you trust them for that, take a look uh, in the show link as a podcast and you will find a couple of links there to use. Okay, 
And finally, to kick us off into this week's episode, one more clip from what was just a weird scene in Iowa over the weekend. Former President Trump had not visited the Iowa State Fair since 2015, right after he announced his first run for the presidency. And yesterday was quite the time for his return, with 2024 rival candidates Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley at the fair at the same time. Trump's motorcade rolled onto the fairgrounds and was swarmed by the masses. This, as the district attorney in Atlanta considers filing state charges against Mr. Trump as soon as this Tuesday, when a grand jury is set to meet. Invest Investigating alleged efforts to overturn Georgia's. Man, such a weird thing. I mean, primary season is always strange. You know, you have these town halls, you have these small meetings, particularly in Iowa that does everything by caucus. Uh, the meetings with people individually is really a big deal for presidential candidates, for presidential hopefuls in Iowa. And that by itself isn't weird. That's not a problem. But the whole thing at the fair was really strange because... It was like a block party kind of thing going on. There, Almost in all the videos you see, people are inebriated. People are shouting out at the candidates. They're not even able to get through what they're doing. They all look somewhat uncomfortable. Mike Pence was cooking pork chops and looked like he didn't know what he was doing. Ron DeSantis, in my opinion, never looks like he knows what he's doing and was having difficulty connecting with anybody in any real sense. And then, of course, Matt Getz, one of the representatives from Florida, who happened to be in Iowa for some reason, uh, instead of perhaps, you know, doing his job, openly said, the only way we create change in Washington is through force. (laughs) He said that openly, and a lot of people cheered him. And it tied in, for me at least, upon hearing that, what I talked about last week as we transition out of the news into this week's subject. We talked about last week. This, these comparisons that get made between the indictment of former President Trump uh, for the January 6th uh, insurrection and comparisons that those who support him make to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. I spent all last week debunking that, and I stand by what I said. There are a few people who reached out who didn't necessarily fully agree uh, or in some cases agree at all, uh, but I stand by what I said. But comments like that. Despite the f- attempts by a lot of people to turn themselves into pretzels to try and explain that away, it's just talk, or he must must have misspoken, or it was taken out of context, robs us of this one larger truth, that when people tell us who they are, we should believe them. It's pretty simple. Maya Angelou said that, by the way, not me. But nevertheless, I think it is absolutely appropriate in this case. And that is something that Representative Getz said that is actually closer to what supporters of President, former President Trump, which include Matt Getz, seemingly are so worried about with this indictment. Right? Once again, as I said last week, methinks Doth projects too much in that case. And so what I want to talk about today is kind of a branch off of last week's discussion, pointing out why that indictment has nothing to do in any way, shape, or form in the past or the present with something that the Nazis were about or something that the Soviets were about. And at the end of the last episode, I talked a little bit when I was talking about the Soviet Union, I talked about kind of this idea that a lot of people throw words around without really knowing what they mean or throw around historical examples that chances are have been cherry-picked from everything from Wikipedia articles to short YouTube videos rather than through legitimate, extensive, thoughtful research to throw these things out to score political points and effectively, I argued, and I still do, to avoid 
taking a good look at themselves and to consider the possibility that A, they might be wrong about something, B, that some of the messages they've been getting around these things are they're effectively being lied to or it's just erroneous information, and three, a chance to step away from the fear that clearly is driving a lot of the angst and the anger on the political right, particularly the farther and farther right you get. We're going to talk a little bit more about what I mean by that today. So what I want to branch off with today, I want to start off with a question. Right? When, last week when I talked about the Soviet Union, I mentioned socialism. And that term, talk about one that gets thrown around. Uh, it gets thrown around quite a bit. And now, remember, I've been studying the 20th century <laughs> political ideologies and social ideologies for a really long time. And Nazism, uh, the Second World War, the Soviet Union, the Holocaust, those are all my areas of expertise that I, I got my Ph.D. in once upon a time. And I've continued to really invest in those and to study those. And much like last week, where I mentioned that you know, people throw around Nazi comparisons and Soviet comparisons without really knowing <laughs> what constitutes Nazism or Soviet communism. People do the same with socialism, and actually I would argue that's actually even worse. It's even more of an egregious misuse of the term uh, these days, primarily in political discourse or political rhetoric more accurately. I'm not sure we're even having discourse anymore when it comes to what at least what we see on television. But this one in particular is also problematic, the misuse of what we mean by socialism. And I don't want this to just be something going, well, here's what I know and you don't. <laughs> Maybe that's unavoidable to a certain degree, but that's not the point. My larger point of talking about this is to encourage all of us, no matter where we stand on these larger political and social questions, to do something that I think is absolutely vital no matter what we are listening to, thinking about, or deciding upon. And that is, before we act, pause. Before we decide what we think, and more importantly, decide what we say, pause to consider that perhaps there is more to know, or perhaps there are perspectives in the other direction that may not be 100% wrong. Some might be, but they might not be. And for what we're talking about today, a pause to go, you know, maybe I don't know enough about said subject for me to really, really take a stand on or to make some sort of assertion about. And in the end, I bring everything back. I bring everything back to personal responsibility that we each have for the things that we think, the things that we learn, the things that we do, and the things that we say. And that we have a responsibility, a duty, a moral imperative to recognize the same things in others and to honor the integrity and value that they have as a human being just by the sheer fact that they exist. That's a starting point for me. That's always a starting point. And what I see with this misuse or misunderstanding of what we mean by socialism, one of these things in our political discourse or social discourse that's just causing way too many problems and nobody that I've seen yet is really nailing down what socialism actually means. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that, see where we end up. And of course, where we usually start with this is when we listen to 
politicians throwing barbs back and forth, particularly Nazi and socialist. Let's go back and forth on the right and the left. We think we know what those those mean, and we really don't seem to know them at all. Nazism is a very distinct, unique expression of fascism. It is tied directly to Hitler and the pre-World War II, World War II and Holocaust experience, and then neo-Nazi, which exists all over the country and all over the world, is a branch off of that. But for the most part, they connect back into a Hitler-centric, for lack of a better term, point of focus around Hitler and the Nazis' racial ideals. Socialism is not that. Socialism doesn't tie back to any one place. It doesn't tie back to any one system, like Soviet communism. In fact, what I'm going to talk about today is most socialists themselves struggle to find a monolithic definition of socialism that everyone accepts. And it's not just today. It's existed that way. It's been that way for about the almost 200 years that forms of socialism now have existed in the modern world. So, unlike Nazi, which has very specific meanings, socialism is really broad. And on one hand, that makes it really easy for people to throw around and use (laughs) as a label. It also even more so perhaps than Nazism, can really muddy the waters when we're talking about what is actually happening now and what we actually think we're debating about or what our options are to bring our society forward. So when we come back after the break, I'm going to introduce you to a name that there's a really good chance most of you never heard of before. And if you have, congratulations, because I think he might be the one who got closest to what socialism perhaps has turned out to be in its most productive form here in the 21st century. So we'll be right back on this show is all about you. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you talking about socialism today. And if you're having an emotional reaction upon hearing that hearing that term one way or the other, that's all right. Sit with it for a minute, because I'm taking on this idea that most of us have any idea what that actually means. And not because it doesn't matter, but because 
it is a much broader and much more hmm, intricate in some ways uh, term than even some of the things we've talked about with Nazism and all those types of things. And so I want to point out once again, as I mentioned last week, the reason why I think these discussions matter is because narratives matter. When we throw around names and terms referring to something as Nazi-like or socialist, that is meant to be pejorative, obviously, and it's meant to group people together, both people that are being labeled as Nazi or socialist, and it's also to help group of people who are against them, <laughs> at least in terms of how they're talking about it, group together around something that they have in common. But the problem is, if those terms are not being used with at least a modicum, a smidge of historical understanding, or even just direct understanding, of what the terms mean, then we run the risk of creating an alternate reality about what is actually happening. And if we are living in an alternate reality about what is actually happening, we are not going to be able to move to positive outcomes and to problem solve around reality unless we just get completely lucky. <laughs> it's that simple. But nevertheless, that's why I think this is so important. Words matter. They really do. And what words mean matter. Not in, as the end-all be-all, but certainly as a starting point. And with socialism, most people are getting, I think, the starting point wrong. Okay, so as I mentioned last week, usually in the political discourse that gets thrown around, when you hear people labeling others as socialists or saying this is like communism, they lump all those things together. And certainly there are uh, examples of that throughout the media currently. And this is something that has happened for a really long time. During the Cold War, uh, if you really wanted to hurt somebody, you labeled them as a socialist or a communist. And that was immediately going to bring up doubts, concerns, fuel prejudices among people. And certainly in the 1950s, um, Joseph McCarthy's uh, investigation of government figures, military figures, people in public positions, in Hollywood uh, blacklisting, all of those things. That's the big thing that we remember. But that was just one example of that type of thing. And for a long period of time in the United States, and I don't think this has ever really been separate since the creation of the Soviet Union in 1917, those words, communism and socialism, tend to get used interchangeably. And they shouldn't. As I mentioned last week, communism is a radical form of socialism. Not the only one, but it's the most radical one, and it's the one that put down the deepest amount of roots and caused the most amount of damage in terms of human lives throughout the 20th century. Uh, Mao's China also uh, went to, that, to almost those same lengths, but those are the ones that are often remembered. So communists, whether they were Lenin or Stalin or Mao or others, have always claimed that they are the true expression of socialism, so they refer to themselves as socialists, that we are the leaders of the socialist revolution. We are leaders of the socialist vanguard. There was lots of different language and lots of disagreements between all these groups, but they all claimed the mantle of being truly socialist. So, as I said last week, all communists in some ways are socialists, radical socialists, but the majority of socialists out there, particularly today, are not communists. They aren't. And so we have to be careful because if we then say socialism and communism are the exact same thing, we're actually then in retrospect 
believing communist propaganda about themselves and about the world. And I am not comfortable with that. I do not accept that as a historian or as a human because those systems that the Soviets put together, that Mao's China put together, and a number of other countries around the world turned out to be absolutely murderous and anti all the things I talked about at the beginning of the show, in particular, respecting the integrity and value of every single human being. Just the same way Nazism did that from the right, Soviet communism, communism in general, did that from the left. And there are more than enough stories uh, that you can find just about anywhere that will support that. But that's the problem is what happens is, is in this country, particularly to score political points, it's real easy to go there to just say, wow, this is communist. This is socialist. When usually people mean the same thing when they're saying that. But that's just not, that's just not how this works. In fact, socialism is really a broad range of ideas. The, what, the common thread that it has is the idea of effectively reducing the huge gaps economically, socially, politically, between those people who have a lot of money, tends to be people in the last 200 years who've been successful in business and in industry and in trade, and the everyday people who are the majority of workers who work to make that system work and work within that system to build their lives. And the idea is over time that because there's a lot more workers than there are people who are making tons of money, what some people refer to pejoratively as the 1%, because there's a lot more of them, the idea is over time, they will be brought closer and closer together because without the efforts of all those exponentially more people, global progress will not continue. And instead, strife will continue. Now, socialists from the 19th century, 20th century, and the 21st all disagree on what that process should look like, whether that is determined by forces of history, whether that is inevitable, whether or not you need a party to run this, like a professional revolutionary group. That's what Lenin believed. That's what Stalin believed. Stalin also believed you needed a real heavy hand by a person in power, by a country, to really effectively run this worldwide. Mao believed that you had to empower the peasantry, because they were mostly peasants in China the time of the revolution. They all had varying, varying opinions on this. But there were also a whole lot of socialists in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries who rejected all of those communist ideas outright. Because, for a lot of different reasons. One, because they just disagreed with the philosophy. Second, they disagreed with the fact that those, all of those people that I just mentioned embraced violence as the primary means through which to push forward this revolutionary change. And they all had apocalyptic visions of an idealized future. Many socialists did not believe that in the 19th and 20th century. One person who did not believe that, and this is the name that I wanted to mention today and focus on, was a man who was named Edward Bernstein. Most of you probably not heard of Edward Bernstein. Yet I would say, and I will say, not only would I say it, I will say it. <laughs> Edward Bernstein's ideas have probably been the most long-lasting positive ideas on the influence of not just socialism, but elements of democracy in the last 200 years. And yet most people have never heard of him. He lived in the mid-19th century. He was German. He was a member of a, of a political party that was banned by Bismarck in the middle of the 19th century, the Social Democrats. All left parties were banned uh, in 19th century 
uh, Germany by Bismarck and his successors. But by the early 20th century and the time World War I rolled around, the Social Democrats, which leaned left in a non-democratic country, Germany was not democratic yet, Bernstein was a major thinker and politician in that group. And Bernstein, rejecting what Karl Marx said about the inevitableness of violent revolution to bring about this new equal society, saying that there had to be bloodshed, he rejected that outright. And taking a look at what revolutions had actually done in the 19th century, causing a lot of bloodshed and creating that, bringing about that law of unintended consequences, Bernstein advocated something that he called evolutionary socialism. That socialism as a moral right, the, the idea of bettering more and more people's lives so they could benefit more and more from the democratic and capitalistic system that was growing more and more dominant in the 19th and early 20th centuries, that that had to evolve, that it could take, it might need to take longer than people wanted it to take wanted it to take, particularly radical socialists like Lenin and Marx and others, because revolution, he argued, tended to blow up everything in its path. It was the idea, pick your, pick your, pick your analogy. You let the genie out of the bottle, you can't control it, right? You try to control burn something, a wildfire gets set. You cannot predict where a revolution is going to go, he argued. And in 1899, he wrote a book, Bernstein did, called Evolutionary Socialism, in which he laid out the fact that socialism needed to grow in a slower pace through largely democratic systems, but not exclusively. Bernstein died in 1932, in December of 1932. And one of the last things that he witnessed in his life was the Nazi party gaining the majority in the 1932 elections. And the next month, Hitler would come to power as chancellor, and I talked about that last week. So Bernstein did not get to see, in his own country, the success of a number of his ideas. And, and World War I certainly was not an example of the success of his ideas. But in the post-World War II period, after the Nazis had been defeated, and the Soviet Union had occupied all of Eastern Europe and imposed their system, largely of their understanding of socialism, radical socialism, communism on Eastern Europe, the rebuild of Western European democracies over time steadily became more of one embracing Bernstein's ideas while also holding on to capitalism and democracy as cornerstones of their development. Now, of course, that was in the Cold War period in which the United States, through NATO, which we hear a lot about today, NATO was providing a lot of the defense umbrella for European countries. So many European countries did not have to invest over the subsequent decades after World War II in their own defense nearly as much as the United States was providing for that defense. There were a few exceptions. France, Great Britain built pretty sizable militaries. West Germany eventually would build a fairly sizable military, but one that could only work in conjunction with NATO. That was how that worked. And over time, this is simplifying greatly, but over time, all those European countries developed, they stayed democratic, they still had large companies and small businesses working within their countries as the basis of their economies, but they created social safety nets underneath their population. And they had, particularly after World War II, had the ability to do that. 
So that meant in most countries in Europe, education all the way through university became paid for. Healthcare over that same period of time became something the government paid for. Pensions given to employees, whether they worked at, at, in the civil service or even with individual private companies, pensions were provided out of state monies for individuals. So as they got older, they would have something to live on. And it would also give incentive, all those things together would give incentive to Europeans to keep having babies so they could continue to build a population and build a robust economy. Today, with the end of the Cold War, a number of Eastern European countries have moved in that same direction with varying degrees of success. But almost throughout the entire Eurozone, as it's called now, not only is the Euro a common currency, but common features, these social safety nets, exist in these places. That does mean, of course, and this is where usually people on the right get upset, these things are built largely on increased numbers of taxes taken out of Europeans' paychecks to go to the government who then provide these services. And I've only mentioned a couple of the big ones. There's lots of other ones, too. Social services of many, many kinds are available in Europe to citizens in these countries, free of charge, paid for by everyone's taxes. Bernstein's ideas, while not specifically about that, his ideas can be can trace right into these decisions made in the post-war period by people who considered themselves social democrats, people who rejected the radicalism of the Soviet Union on one hand, also were skeptical a little bit of unfettered capitalism on the other hand, and still believed in creating some sort of relationship between individual rights and individual earning power and individual votes and economic, social benefits that could be provided as much as possible to all. Now, that is a very, very, I can, I can hear people saying, well, that's a, that's a real positive spin on it. Yeah, it is. In part, because in Europe it works. <laughs> that's, and I've been there. I've seen it. I know people who live in it. The system has its problems, certainly, like every system does. And nobody in those countries would claim that all these systems work perfectly. However, there's workability to them. The, all those countries I've mentioned are successful democracies and continue to be and are an important part of the global economy, are an important part of global humanity for all those reasons. But they're only just, it's only just one. Evolutionary socialism embraced more and more by people who refer to themselves as social democrats really has proven to be the best versions of socialism that we've seen in terms of upholding those things that I've talked about, creating social safety net, but also honoring the integrity and value of every single human being on the basis of the fact that they're human, no matter where they were born, when they were born, what they look like, how much money they have or don't have. And what I find interesting about that is when we talk about it in those terms, those generalized terms that I just laid out, most of us go, yeah, that's really that's really what we should be looking for. That's really what we should shoot for. But I tell you what, as soon as somebody puts forward something that someone else labels as socialist, we have a number of people, a whole side of the political conversation, in fact, who go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what we mean. <laughs> that follows with the question, well, then what do you mean? 
Bernstein understood this in the 19th century and understood that simple radical solutions to try and solve these large, complex, integrate, integrate problems, intricate problems, excuse me, trying to do that too quickly was going to end in disaster. History has proven him right on a lot more things, in my opinion, than it's proven him wrong on. And yet he's not a person most of us know. We know the names Lenin, Stalin, Mao for good reason, but not good reason if you're trying to say, hey, not all socialism is necessarily bad. When we come back from the break, I'll talk a little bit about the flip side of this to explain a little bit more about why we need to be careful when we're talking about what socialism is and isn't. Be right back. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. I'm your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, talking about socialism and uh, why a lot of us don't really know what it is. And I suggested at the top of the show, in part, it's because socialists themselves don't necessarily agree on what it is. And let me just point out a couple of things that I think are really important. Here's just a list of the types of socialism that exist out there. I've targeted a few for larger conversation, but here's some of them, all right? So I'm just going to go down the list. These are all under the umbrella of socialism. Leninism, Marxist-Leninism, Stalinism, Trotskyism, Council Communism, Left Communism, Maoism, Dengism, Autoism, Anarchism, which includes things like Mutualism, Collectivist Anarchism, Anarcho-Communism, Anarcho-Syndicalism, Individualist Anarchism, <laughs> Democratic socialism, social democracy, eco-socialism, under that is green anarchism. Liberal socialism, under that is ethical socialism. Libertarian socialism, regional socialism, which includes things like uh, Abertzala left socialism, which is from the Basque country in Spain. Democratic confederalism, Arab socialism, nationalist socialism, like the Kuomintang in China, which is now Taiwan. Vietnam today, Irish Republican Socialism, Religious Socialism, that includes Buddhist, Christian, Islamic, Jewish, and last but not least, Syndicalism. Now, how many of any of us know what those are off the top of our heads? Probably not most of us, nor should we. That's a lot. But all of those groups differ not just in what they focus on and call socialist, but they differ from one another and in a lot of cases have animosity towards one another. Because one of the things about, you know, card-carrying socialists is they believe that this is the right way that things should go. For the most part. But if there's that many different groups, that many different points, it says to me a couple of things. One, we can't just call something socialist and know what that means and have it stick. So if we can't do that, we shouldn't use the name in a pejorative sense, in a name calling, because it means nothing if we're going to use it that way. That's the first thing it points out. 
And second, it points out that there's a whole lot of people out there with a whole lot of ideas about what doesn't work in an unequal society and a lot of ideas on how it could be better. Unfortunately, when socialist systems have been put into place in a number of different countries, they've been a disaster. And so for those people who have lived under such systems that have all claimed to be truly socialists, so they all call themselves socialists, keep that in mind. They all call themselves that. For anybody who lived under those systems, anything that sounds, feels, smells <laughs> like socialism, they are going to react poorly to and want to stay away from. A couple of personal examples. Last week, I met, I'm in a networking group, and I met with a new member of this networking group, a young woman. She's 22, and she is starting her own uh, personal fitness training business. She's from Venezuela. And she's 22 years old, moved here four years ago. And Venezuela is a very socialist, some would argue communist. They don't claim communist, they claim socialist. A very harsh socialist regime. And over the last 20 years, starting under Hugo Chavez, and after his death, followed by his successor, Nicolai Madero, the country has collapsed under a centralized economic system in which the government took over, like the Soviets did, like Mao did, like others have done, took over all running of business in the country and put everything under government control. And when you added to that hostile rhetoric and actions towards their neighbors, as well as towards the United States, Venezuela, much like Cuba before it, which is openly communist, found itself cut off from the rest of the world for the most part. And their economy collapsed. Corruption, endemic. Violence, a regular part of life. And this person, her name's Ariana, shared with me some harrowing stories of the type of violence that was commonplace in Venezuela and remains that way today. In fact, you can't even get a direct flight to Venezuela from the United States anymore. And there's very few direct flights to anywhere out of Venezuela anymore. In that sense, it's a lot more like Cuba and North Korea than anything else. But she told me an interesting story. Back when President Trump was elected in 2016, everyone in Venezuela who was suffering miserably, the economy had crashed, people were unemployed, there was violence everywhere, not just in the streets, but perpetuated by the government. No freedom of speech, no rights of assembly. When Trump was elected, a lot of people in Venezuela were thrilled because he was screaming out against socialism. So much so that people began to call him Poppy Trump, hoping, openly hoping, that because of his supposed anti-socialist stance, that he would send troops down there to topple Maduro's government and liberate the Venezuelan people. Of course, Trump never considered that because, A, Trump doesn't know what socialism is, much like most other people don't, and second, him sending troops would have been mm, controversial, to say the very least, nor were people in Venezuela aware of or paying any attention to, to the open prejudices that pres then-President Trump had laid out to pretty much anybody who was outside of the United States. Since she's moved here, she's changed her opinion, to a certain degree, to a large degree, about that. But the fact of the matter is, for anybody living under a socialist regime as defined by places like Venezuela, the Soviet Union, 
China, East Germany, one of the biggest police states in the history of police states, people who lived under them rightfully reject socialism, but they're radically rejecting radical socialism in all of these things because these socialisms are not democratic. They aren't connected to that. They grab the language of democratic. They say they're working on behalf of the people, but they give the people no actual say in their day-to-day lives. So to simply say that's socialism running to its logical conclusion, only if we're talking about radical socialism, some form of radical socialism. That's not what Bernstein was talking about. That's not what a lot of other socialists have talked about. Second story, just heard this the other day. A friend of a friend has moved down to Florida and is getting involved in local politics and is really interested in helping uh, women's groups, particularly uh, Cuban women in Florida to politically mobilize. And this friend of a friend was surprised that all of these Cuban women, almost without exception, were all very pro-Trump voters. Not a surprise when you consider they're coming from Cuba, a communist country, once again, claiming the mantle of being truly socialist, and so they call themselves socialists, not really communists very often, who escaped Cuba under Castro, the Castro brothers, a nightmare place to live, a nightmare place to try and stay in. They escaped some way, shape, or form, Chances are, by trying to float across the 80 miles between Cuba and Florida, they've got very strong opinions about Castro. And so anything that sounds like socialism is called socialism, reminds them of socialism, immediately they reject. And it's understandable. The fact is, though, in both those cases, the types of things that people, particularly on the far right, are throwing around about This is socialist, whether it's more taxes on something, (laughs) which is usually what it is, right? The idea of a different type of taxation is usually what they scream about being socialist. Anything that they label as such to groups that have actually endured radical socialism, of course, there's going to be a predilection on those people's parts to support them. But the fact of the matter is, in the American system, the type of socialism that you see in the Soviet Union and East Germany, and Venezuela, and North Korea. It's not existing here. And there are no socialists, people who even lean socialists, or Democrats in general, that are saying, you know what? The model we really should be going after is Venezuela. You know what? I really miss East Germany. Let's do that again. There are no crowds showing up in Iowa, or in Florida, or in Washington, saying, you know what? I think we all misunderstood Stalin. You know what? Hugo Chavez wasn't that bad of a guy. You know what? Maybe Castro's a pretty good dude. You don't see big crowds doing that. You don't see crowds or individuals, members of Congress, from the left coming out and saying, you know, the only way we can force about change in Washington is through force. The idea of taxing corporations and closing loopholes that companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing, and others get to keep building their profits, the conversation about closing those loopholes so that more taxes come into the system that can be spent on infrastructure and larger social programs, that is not socialism. 
It isn't. It's part of a larger conversation that has been going on in this country since almost its inception, even though it's got definitely more modern twists at this point. What is the relationship between individual freedom and liberty on one hand and social responsibility on the other? No lesser a thinker than John Locke articulated this in the 18th century in two treatises on government in which he laid out the idea of the social contract. And he laid out that individual freedoms, all this becomes enshrined in the Declaration of Independence as well, you're going to have individual freedoms, as well as the Constitution, I should add, but you also are going to have some freedoms limited for the benefit of others because they can't have their freedoms stood upon. What's happened over time, particularly around the economic idea, is this idea in the United States that all the money that we individually earn is ours, has become paramount. Even though we pay money to make sure we have things like roads and traffic lights and electrical poles and cell phone towers. Those are just a few. Oh, airports. Yeah. Oh, and safe skies for those airplanes, by the way. <laughs> right? Regulations to make sure that our food is safe. That the drugs that we make for diseases and used in hospitals are safe. All those things taken together, tax money goes into. It's been part of a larger debate that has gone on for decades and now centuries about the relationship between not only individual rights and the need to provide for more and more people to create a stable society that where everyone can grow and everyone has opportunity. That's a debate that's gone back and forth for a really long time. Whether we're talking about people that were socialist by identification or by practice or not. The idea of a social safety net or finding more effective programs does not make something socialist. It's been part of, part of the conversation for a really long time. In the modern sense, it goes back at least as far as the New Deal under FDR in the 1930s in the middle of the Depression. When the country experienced and the world experienced what happens when there are not a lot of protections for individual people in the economic and the political systems in which they live? The New Deal was an active and an unprecedented entry of the American government into people's lives to keep them alive, to rebuild the economy, to keep the country afloat. And there's a lot of debate over how well that worked. But the fact of the matter is, the people who got that help every single day valued it. And it stuck for a really long time. And there's been backlash, at least since the 1960s, against that. To the point now where, from both directions, left and right, a lot of government entities are distrusted. And I'm not here to say that that's unwarranted. What I am here to say is you can't just throw out the legitimacy of governmental programs or things that are supported through taxes, unless you have some sort of idea of what to replace it with. And if it's going to be the generosity of individual people, we probably have a better job to do across the board than all of us showing up to do that. Whatever the case may be, it's yet another reason why labeling something socialist doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't really mean anything. 
And even people who call themselves democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders, AOC, and others, they'd be better off calling themselves social democrats because that's really what they are. That's really what they're trying to push. And they also tend to blend together the idea of more economic aid for individuals, particularly poorer individuals, with social justice. And there's a lot of conversations that can be had on how well those two necessarily can and should go together. But even they aren't necessarily getting it right. Because with socialism, there's not much to get right when we're talking about it being defined. In the end, (laughs) us paying attention and valuing creating systems that can help people live their day-to-day lives more effectively should be a human thing. And we see it happen when there's a disaster. Look what just happened in Hawaii. People are lining up to help. People are sending money, sending goods, not caring whether those people are Republican, Democrat, whether they are rich or poor, what their nationality is. So that, to me, that's an admission that deep down, we all know this on some level. And we clutter it up with our own self-interest first, usually fueled by fear that somehow we're going to get screwed. Economically, politically, socially, life-wise, if somebody else gets a little bit more, if some of our money goes to help someone who doesn't have as much as we do. It's a bunch of crap in the end. And to label it something Nazi, socialist, whatever, ignores reality and it ignores history. I saw somewhere once that history without discomfort is propaganda. There's a lot of truth to that. I would add, (laughs) reality without discomfort is an alternate reality. It's a myth. There are many of us living in that myth, whether we know it or not. And to push aside labels, to then focus on what is actually happening, takes thought, it takes research, and not just looking at Google. (laughs) It takes conversation, it takes consideration, and it takes, above all, acceptance of other people for having different opinions. And that is something that if we could all cultivate, no matter where we stand on things, we'd be better off. All right, be interested to see what the reaction is to this one. (laughs) Maybe I'll continue next week. I'm running short on time, so I want to make sure that I thank Hubbard Radio, I thank Eric Ryder, as always, that I thank Airway Science for Kids, that I thank Dave Nelson for the music for this show, and there are a whole lot of people out there who I thank every week for helping me have a wonderful week. You know who you are. And to all you listeners, thank you. I could not do this for you without you. And to send you off in the rest of the week, here is another original haiku. Caring for others should not be defined by our right or left leanings. Chins up, everyone.